For those of us who are married here today, let me ask you this question. Can you remember your proposal day? Well, chances are, whether for the right or wrong reasons, I bet you can. Marriage proposals are so special. So often when we hear of a couple getting engaged and we see them, we tend to ask two questions. Can I see the ring and how did he propose? What makes marriage proposals so romantic and so special? It could be the fact that it's the start of a lifelong commitment. It could also be the fact that it's such an expression of love and the drama that surrounds it. I've heard of many marriage proposals, some that are real humdingers. I've heard of men that propose with banners that are dragged behind planes. Others have posted on billboards on busy roads with signs, will you marry me? I know of young men who've set up romantic settings with candles and fairy lights in parks and beaches. I guess you realise that happened in Queensland, not here because it's too cold. Most men plan and go to great lengths and creativity for the hand, asking for the hand of their bride-to-be. But here's the thing. You can go to all that length. You can go to all that planning. You can spend as much money as you like. Yet the proposal is still a stab in the dark. That's because almost every proposal contains a question, a question that can go one of two ways. You can get a yes or you can get a no. When the man asks, he's taking a chance that the woman is going to say yes. But let me tell you, sometimes they say no. He hopes that she'll say yes, but until that yes comes out of her mouth, he can't be 100% sure. He's acting on faith. I know for me personally, um, Michelle and I didn't have a very good history. That was more to do with me than Michelle. And I remember the time when I come to ask her to marry me, it wasn't planned. It just happened. I thought, this is a good time. Let's do it. And when I asked her, I was quite scared. Would I get a yes because of the history that we're involved in? Well, thankfully, I got a yes. Yeses are great. Noes are not so good. I know of guys, as I said, that have got a no. But, you know, I think there would be one more answer that would be worse than a no. Imagine getting on your knee and asking your bride-to-be, will you marry me? And she says, oh, maybe. Or she says, yes, but. Well, in a way, this is exact situation we've been looking at in Ruth chapter 3. If you remember in Ruth chapter 3, it all circled around the proposal of marriage. We saw last time our Naomi had given Ruth a plan to approach Boaz to see if he would be willing to perform his role as kinsman redeemer. If he accepted this mean that he would marry her and raise up the children in the name of her deceased husband, Elimelech. Ruth went to the fleshing floor where Boaz slept, waited in the shadows for Boaz to go to sleep. Then she tiptoed in and laid down at his feet. Then Boaz woke in fear in the middle of the night, seeing someone in the dark at his feet and says, who are you? Following the plan, Ruth reveals herself and asks Boaz, would he consider being her kinsman redeemer? He asked, she asked, spread the corner of your garment over me. And we said how that is the marriage proposal. I can't imagine them having kids and imagine them asking, how did you and mum get together? What was your marriage proposal? And... As he always done, once Ruth said that, he responded with grace. 
his message was, yes, the farmer wants a wife. Or he says, maybe. Because technically, his answer to this is yes, but. Yes, he would love to be her kinsman redeemer, but there is one closer who had a greater right. So he says, stay with him and he will sort it out. And that's where we are today. Verse 14 tells us that she laid at his feet till morning. I mentioned last time it wouldn't have been safe for Boaz to send Ruth back home in the middle of the night unescorted. He could not escort her home as that may arise all kinds of questions. So Boaz told Ruth to lie down and stay with him until morning. Consistent with her past conduct, she submits. She obeys everything he says because that's what Naomi told her to do. So she lays at her feet until morning. I can't help but think as she lay there, her mind probably would have been spinning at 100 miles per hour. She would be thinking about what was in store for this day ahead. She knows what was happening once the sun come up. Boaz is going to see this closer relative to see if he wants to claim the right to marry her. She knows that, but she doesn't know the outcome. I know if that was me, I would be, my mind would just be going, I wouldn't be sleeping at all. I would be lying there with my mind consumed thinking about the outcome. I would be thinking through every possibility and every outcome that could arose in this day. I also can't help but think that she would have also had the thought when Boaz did approach this near near kinsman, no matter his age, his wealth or his position in society, I truly believe that her desire was that he refuses the offer because in him she would only have uncertainty. On the other hand, because of the kindness that this man Boaz, at whose feet she's been at, has shown to her in so many different occasions, she had the certainty and security. There must have made her heart yearn for a knockback from this other guy. Anyway, a sleepless night um, that, that she had, she laid at his feet to morning. There was where Ruth spent the rest of the night in the place of submission and servitude at his feet, certainly pondering how the events of the next day would unfold. What probably seemed like an eternity when the earliest showing of light on the horizon shone, it seemed Ruth interjects her own wisdom at this point. When morning comes, just before dawn, she arose and literally stood up and goes to leave. Her intent was to depart the area before light came. This would allow her to leave in the shadows so people still couldn't recognise faces. Without a verbal greeting, there would only be an unrecognisable shape passing by. It was important that Ruth quietly got up and left before anyone could see what was going on. The early departure was a necessary safeguard to maintain the integrity of both her and Boaz. Remember, Boaz is seen as a man of noble character. So he would be concerned about the appearance of evil. And let's face it, given his current situation, he didn't really have the ability to avoid the appearance of evil. He has practically woken up with a woman in his bed. This is a serious situation that could ruin his reputation. So for Ruth to leave before the sun comes up was a wise decision. Now we get to the quite confusing bit of the passage. I know when you read it, And you probably think we're told, Boaz said, let it be known that no woman came to the threshing floor. Sounds simple, right? 
Why do I say this is confusing? Well, sorry to bore you, but we're just going to talk a little bit of theology for a second. This phrase has caused a lot of conversation, speculation and debate by scholars for years and years and years. The debate is this. Who did he speak these words to? Why is there a confusion, you might say? It's quite simple. It's there in black and white. Well, because of the Hebrew wording in this sentence, the word he says that are written here are not strictly correct. They should be interpreted as he thought or he said to himself. Also, you'll notice in some translation, it is not a woman, it is the term the woman. Let it not be known the woman. This also has added confusion. Let me give you three schools of thought on this passage. The first school is that he said this to himself or like a prayer to God, as if he was petitioning to God to keep the matter secret. Because as I said, the correct wording is he said to himself. Now, I know a lot of people believe and interpret it this way. Those who oppose and make this comment, if Boaz was praying, then surely the author would write something like he said in his heart or he said to God. And it doesn't say that. To believe it was a prayer is to insert an idea into the passage, which is forced. The next school of thought is Boaz is speaking to his hired men and not to Ruth. Even though Ruth wanted to leave before she could be recognised, some believe that the village is small and news travels fast, and some of Boaz's employees would have already known that she was there. We can easily imagine such speculation, how it would land. So Boaz wants to prevent such public speculation to Ruth's presence. So he asked his workers, keep it quiet. Don't tell anyone about the woman on the threshing floor. The arguments against this interpretation is nowhere in the narrative are we told that there are servants or workers on the premises at hand. The belief simply isn't supported. So to make such an assumption involves inserting something not indicated in the Bible passage. Now the final school of thought. His statement is an awkward, translated warning to Ruth. They conclude this because we get in the next verse, and he said... They do take this to be speaking to Ruth. So it is a continuous conversation with her, not with his workmen or to himself or a prayer to God. They believe the term the woman is used in a peculiar way that Boaz meant for a peculiar purpose. They take it like this. You, Ruth, do not let it be known that the woman, meaning you, Ruth, came to the threshing floor. So they say it logically indicates that he is speaking to Ruth. So there's the three school of thoughts. Bit scared, which one do I agree with? Well, I actually think he said it to himself. I actually think he never said it to Ruth or a Hardman. I think he said it to himself. You may disagree, and guess what? As I said before, you don't need to do much study on this verse before you see the phrase has caused a lot of conversation, speculation and debate by scholars. That's why many commentaries that you'll read on this says we simply don't know who Boaz is talking to here. It may be a trusted servant, it may be to himself, it may be a prayer to God, or it may be just an awkward translated warning to Ruth. Now, you may be sitting here and thinking, Garth, who cares? I mean, what difference does it make who he said it to? Why do scholars have to go and ruin the party? Why do they have to go and argue about everything? 
And in this case, you may be right. Because in this case, who he said it to or why he said it doesn't change anything of the story. The fact that Ruth left early and Boaz wanted it to be kept unknown was done for both Ruth's sake and for his own. How? Well, for Ruth, Boaz were concerned that the presence of Ruth on the fleshing floor might have been misunderstood. He's concerned about her integrity being stained. As already been stated in the passage, Ruth had the reputation of a woman of excellence by the villagers. Yet it seems clear the villagers is small. And let me tell you, as one who lived in a small country town, news travels fast. Sometimes people in small country towns know what you're doing before you do it. And let me tell you this, the faster the news travels about what you've done, the more it changes. If the freshing floor rendezvous was known and talked about by the locals, it would have easily been assumed that immorality was the reason for the rendezvous. So we can easily imagine where such stories and speculations would end up once the gossip train started. It is clear Boaz wants to prevent this kind of public speculation as to Ruth's presence and her intentions. Keeping it secret also helps him because of the matter that he has to go and do that day of the other kingsmen. He's acknowledged that there is a kingsman closer than he is. That kingsman must be given the first opportunity to accept or decline the right to become Ruth's kingman's redeemer. Boaz didn't want this near kinsman redeemer to learn Ruth was demanding her right to marriage before he could tell him personally. Due to the events of the coming day, there is an order and a modesty that Boaz had to follow to ensure that all was done according to the law. If this other kinsman did find out that Ruth had been with Boaz, he could assume, though incorrectly, that they had been intimate. This would in turn reflect negatively on both of them and affect the outcome. It changes the law. In no way could Boaz and Ruth be seen to have tainted, pre-planned or manipulated what is going to transpire this day before the law. So while some may say there is secrecy isn't a good thing, in his words in the Bible that are recorded, he has acted rightly, fairly, thoughtfully and according to the law. Boaz and Ruth are not trying to hide anything scandalously. They have done nothing sinful that needs to be hidden. And another thing, we can conclude that nothing inappropriate has taken place. Why? Because of what happens next. Boaz gives her gifts. Boaz adds a gift to the token of his commitment. He tells Ruth, give me your cloak, and she holds it out to him. And it has been in the case, in every instance, she does exactly what she says. And he gives her measures of a handful of six grains of barley. Now, some translations use the word ephah. Well, that's not in the original. It's not six ephahs a grain, and for good reason. An ephah accounts to about a bushel of wheat. One ephah or one bushel would be as much as Ruth could carry in a basket, just as she did on her first day of labour back in chapter 2. So unless Ruth was the size of a large cow, unless she was equally strong, unless she went to the gym seven times a week and pumped it, there is no way she could carry six ephahs of barley. It's impossible. It is doubtful that Boaz wanted to see her dragging a shore full of barley the size of a recliner chair home that morning. That would only bring more conception. Anyway, before Boaz left, Boaz couldn't resist showing her and Naomi kindness again. As a proper gentleman, Boaz did not send Ruth home empty-handed, not having any chocolates, 
any flowers, he gave her six handfuls of barley. There's a couple of reasons the gift is given and the couple of reasons why the number six is mentioned. Go away, study it for yourself. But the first is this. She would look less conspicuous going home with barley or grain. If she were to go home walking freely, wearing her best shawl, and she was seen, someone could make an assumption that she'd been out all night doing something, whatever that something may be. And it might not be a good thing as they supposed. Instead, by carrying a sack full of grain, they could naturally assume that she worked so late that she fell asleep while working. Thus, her image would only be improved, not diminished. The second reason for the gift is this. It is a gift for Naomi as much as Ruth. Naomi is the one who stood in relation to Ruth as the parent, and so she would have the consent to any marriage. The widowed mother was the one who was to approach the attending bridegroom. The grain was for Naomi. It was like a down payment or earnest that guaranteed his attention. Ruth may not have understood its significance, but let me tell you, Naomi certainly did. After she saw the grain, she knew his intentions perfectly. He was telling those two widows they would never have to worry about having enough food again. He would see to it that he is the one and they would be cared for. We can imagine Ruth's thoughts at this point. There must have been relief. Not only was her proposal not rejected, not only was she not, as, not taken advantage of, yes, the farmer wants a wife and he blessed her with more gifts. Now, after this, some translations were told that she went into the city. Again, I think most of them have corrected it. It's not correct. The Hebrew word is masculine. It's not she went into the city. It is he went into the city. So even though different texts reads he or she, the meaning is Boaz went into the city. And this makes sense. Both of them have missions to perform that day. Hers is to take the grain home to Naomi. She's to go back home. His mission is to go to the city gates and meet the close relative to complete the matter. So off they go to their respective places for the day. Boaz goes to the city gates. Ruth sets off home. Once Ruth arrives home, she's met with her matchmaking mother-in-law. Here we're told in another curious use of wording, Naomi asks the questions, is that you, my daughter? Well, the literal translation, the Hebrew meaning is, who are you, my daughter? Most scholars teach us because of the wording of this question, the overarching nature of her question is, isn't who is it? It is who are you? Who are you in standing? Stated differently, the question is this. Are you the widowed Ruth or are you the betrothed to Boaz? She then tells her all that Boaz had done for her. The answer to Naomi's question is still left open. Rather than I am Boaz betrothed, she relays the hopes discussed in the dark hours and the now past night. Her news is, yes, the farmer wants a wife. However, I got a yes, but. Boaz has made a promise. He will accept her offer. Only on the condition the other closest kinsman, Redeemer, doesn't want it. So either by Boaz or a closer relative, I shall be redeemed. The question isn't if, the question is to who. While the joy of such thoughts to both of them must have been immense, just stop and put yourself in Ruth's shoes for a second. Do you think she would make a comment like this to Naomi? 
Well, Mum, that's what happened. That's how the night panned out. Look, it's been a heavy night. I haven't had much sleep. Do you mind if I just go and take a nap for a few hours? Do you think she could say that? Well, I know if it was me. No way. She would be pacing. Her heart would be racing for her time would be going backwards because what is happening at the city gates is out of her control. The settling of this matter, she had no say in. Naomi knew the anxiety of Ruth's heart and the immense nervousness moment of life. She probably even saw it firsthand. Ruth would already be nervously pacing and this nervousness would only intensify as each minute passed. So Naomi rightly asked her to sit down, relax, until you know how the matter turns out and it will be settled. Maybe a stupid thing to say. Hey, girl, just relax, calm down. Go and watch some TV or read a book. I know they didn't have TV then, I'm just saying. But what wasn't a stupid thing for her to say was this. Stop, relax, because Boaz will not rest until he has settled the matter today. Once again, Naomi makes a prediction about Boaz that will come true. Naomi was an insightful observer and seemed to predict people's behaviour pretty well. Having seen Boaz's action towards Ruth in the past and his kind gift of barley that accompanied her home, she knew that his heart was set on her and he had every intentions having her. Why? He loved her. Naomi is a bit like my mum. Remember I said last time my mum used to say, have a saying, love makes a man do things quickly. Naomi is convinced that because he loves her and wants her, she knows he will follow up on his commitment and see the matter through to the end. But more than that, she's confident he will settle the matter quickly. Boaz gave her assurance to Ruth that he would depart first thing in the morning to see the close relative and work out the plans needed to settle the matter. Naomi knew Boaz well enough to know that he was a man of his word. He will certainly do exactly what he told Ruth he would do. There, within hours of finding security and rest in one who would perform the redemption. Even though this was a time of considerable anxiety for Ruth, she had claimed her right to be married and she would be married. The only question we're left with at the end of chapter three is to whom would she be married to? Would it be Boaz or would it be the near redeemer? Naomi assures Ruth that he will have it all sorted out very quickly that very day. The farmer wants a wife, so love does make a man do things quickly. The matter decided and settled will happen before the day is over. When we come to the end of chapter three, we have a great sigh of relief. Things might have ended differently and that would not have been good. But Ruth and Boaz were placed in compromising situations, but both responded godly in godly ways so that their character was evident and the goal which Naomi sought out could be gained. That brings us to the end of chapter three. So what? Well, there are many lessons to learn from our text today. However, I want to finish this message by focusing on what I consider the bigger, the biggest so what. And that is the difference we see between chapter two and chapter three. You see, for me, both of these chapters, chapter two and chapter three, are all about a plan. Chapter two is about a plan to survive and live. Chapter three is about a plan to be redeemed and live. And as I just said, each plan is different. 
Ruth's plan in chapter 3 um, is when she goes out to glean in order to survive. When she went out to glean, she went with no definite plan. She went out with no definite place. She just went out and hoped for the best. As a gleaner, she could have been physically abused or humiliated. She went out hoping someone would find grace for her. When she sets out in chapter 3 with a plan to be redeemed and live, instead of uncertainty in what she would do or where she was to go, she had a set purpose, a determined mission, if you like. Going with clear instructions given Naomi to go to a specific place, wearing specific clothes and looking a specific way. The plan in chapter 2 showed her rights to glean in order for her and her mother-in-law to physically live. The plan in chapter 3 showed her rights to be redeemed so that the family name will continue on forever. In chapter 2, the plan involved acting openly with humility, faithfully working to feed herself and feed her mother. In chapter 3, the plan involved acting secretly, even with greater humility, to carry on the name of the family. The plan in chapter 2 was all about overcoming hunger and physical needs. The plan in chapter 3 is all about overcoming love to fulfil emotional needs. When Ruth lived out the plan of gleaning in chapter 2, she demonstrated her promise and faithfulness to Naomi. When Ruth lived out her plan of redemption in chapter 3, she demonstrated obedience to her. The plan in chapter 2 saw Ruth go out as an outsider, a foreigner. That's why four times in chapter 2 the word Moabite and her origin is pointed to. The plan in chapter 3, Ruth sets out not going out as a foreigner. She will go out with the redemption rights of a widower under the law of Israel. She goes out as the one who has the right to be redeemed. That's why not once, not once in chapter 3 do you hear the word Moab. She's not referred to it at all. Two very different plans, two very different outcomes. But these plans are part of this wonderful love story of Boaz, Ruth and Naomi, plans that bring about survival and redemption of a family. The story we are looking at is a wonderful portrait of the unfolding events of God's redemption throughout all of history. Each verse in this book of Ruth is being used to show us marvellous clues to consider, to then hopefully recognise what God has done and is doing throughout history. This leads me to communion. Because of what we celebrate at the Lord's table is a plan. It is God's plan of redemption. Do you know, working at campsite and we used to have kids come up and lead, they used to come up with stories of the gospel And there were some that I hated. There were some that I called out-of-controlled stories. I remember a story of this disease that was going around and there's this boy that has the cure for this disease and and they go and grab him. But if he gives his blood, he saves everyone but dies himself. And what does he do? I remember a story of a father on a bridge that opens up and closes and there's a train coming along and his boy is, his son is in the clogs of the bridge and he thinks, I've got to put the bridge down to save all the people on the train. But if he puts the bridge down, he kills his son. What does he do? What we celebrate at the Lord's table is not an out-of-control story. Those stories are out-of-control. I used to say to the leaders, what chance or what say did the boy in the clogs of the bridge have? Just as the plan of redemption we saw today in chapter 3 involved three people, Naomi, 
the one who came up with the plan. Boaz was the one who could deliver the plan and Ruth was the one who has the right to receive the plan. We are the same. God the Father is the one who came up with the plan. Jesus the Son is the one who can deliver the plan and the Holy Spirit is the one who gives us the right to receive the plan. Jesus is our Kingsman Redeemer and he possesses the right to redeem us. When we offer ourselves to him, it is because he possesses the right of redemption. Like Boaz, Jesus had to follow everything by the law. Jesus had to follow the plan of God to make sure that it was done right and correctly. Because of this, without being presumptuous, we can say, Father, you have redeemed me, therefore redeem me. Bring it on. Matthew Henry always, the one to look at Christological significance in a passage, beautifully relays the words for us to consider. This narrative, he says, may encourage us to lay ourselves by faith at the feet of Christ. He is our near kinsman. He has taken our nature upon him. He has the right to redeem us. Let us seek to receive from him all his directions. Ruth has sought a kinsman to redeem and she will find out he is willing to do so. We too have a kinsman redeemer who's willing to redeem each of us. He is near to us because he became man. Let us willingly come to him. Let us let him spread his garment over each of us. Let us come under his wings. For he is Christ the Lord, our Saviour, our Head. He is the incarnate Word, our glorious Jesus Christ. Let me pray. Father, I thank you for the plan of our redemption you've put in place. I thank you for your kind hand of grace that you've given to me. Lord Jesus, I thank you that you said yes to the plan and were willing to do all the necessary requirements to be our Kingsman Redeemer. I thank you that because of what we celebrate today, we can know you redeemed us. And Holy Spirit, I thank you that you continue to show us every day the gift of our redemption that has been granted for all eternity. In Jesus' name, amen. I want to share to you two verses. If the stewards want to come up now, they can. As I said, in, in Ruth chapter 2, she's an outsider. She's a Moabite. In Ruth chapter 3, she's very different. This is what we celebrate today. This is from Romans 11. There was a time not so long ago when you were on the outs with God, but then the Jews slammed the door on him and things opened up for you. Now they are on the outs, but... In him, in one way or another, God makes sure that we all experience what it means to be outside so we can personally open the door and be welcomed back in. We were on the outside. I've said to you before, what are the most, for me, the most powerful words in the Bible are, but God. Go and have a look at the times in the Bible that says, but God. Well, this is one of them. He says, you were on the outer, but God has opened the door. God makes sure that we all experience an open door so he can welcome us back in. 
Psalm 34, 22. The Lord redeems the life of his servants. None of those who take refuge in him will be condemned. Today is the Lord's table. If you know what it is to have been redeemed, if you know what it is that he has said yes and, and taken you under his wings, then I invite you to be a part of our table today. If you don't know what it is to have Jesus as your kinsman redeemer, if you don't know what it is to be redeemed, then please just let it go past you. Don't feel pressured to take it because what we do here is symbolic, but it is very serious. It is dear to us because it reflects what happens. As the stewards hand out the elements, as they hand out the wafer, take and eat it. It's a representation of the body of Christ that's been broken for you as your kingsman redeemer. When they hand out the cups, hold them and we will drink together. And that is the precious blood that has been poured out for you for our redemption. That was God's plan from beginning to the end. May his name be praised forever.